hand to the music team. They faithfully, faithfully serve, are here early to practice and go over songs. They come in on Saturdays to uh, have a heart to lead us in worship uh, by way of song. And I just, uh, I'm so appreciative of their, their dedication to, to want to lead us in that way. Um, we're glad that you're here this Sunday. I always look forward to Sunday. Shelly and I get a little bit giddy on Saturday nights knowing Sunday's on the way. Uh, so we're glad that you're here. And we're going to dive into a message as we continue our Life Together series on restoring relationships. You know, Shelly and I, we've worked closely with others to reach the lost and to plant churches in a couple of different contexts. And in doing this, one of the things we learned is that people, as they work together, they walk through different phases as they work together in team to reach the lost. And here they are. Here's the four. The first phase is you've got to form. You've got to come together. The second stage is you're going to storm. I'm going to talk about that one. Third phase is you get to norming, where you begin to figure out how to make it work. And the last phase is performing. You begin to see God do some great things as you've come together, purposed for his global expansion in the world. So the group of people they form, they get to know one another and figure out their role in reaching others for Jesus. Then during stage two, people begin to storm. Basically, you get two people together and you can find three opinions. Have you seen that? Yes, that's the way it works. So personality clashes happen, some arguments over how things should be done, they can occur, but pretty soon, people work through their issues, and they transition to norming, but I will say that transition, it has to be intentional, people have to commit themselves to say, we want to move, we want to move beyond these things for the greater good. So they come to where they're norming. They figure out what works and how they can successfully work together to see the message of Jesus go out. And then full speed ahead, they're performing. They function as a healthy team of people, and lives are continually being changed. As you can imagine, that's where I want us to get to. When Shelly and I first went overseas, I mentioned in another message how we had moved from living in the U.S., very compartmentalized lives. You know, we had the neighbors we lived near, the older couple that was just to the left, I'd shovel their driveway, good people. And we had our work colleagues, the people we we did life with and work, and then we had our church friends, those that we led in ministry, um, but oftentimes those three areas didn't intersect a whole lot. And then we transitioned to life overseas where we worked with the people that we went to church with, that we lived near, saw those people a lot, and so it magnifies things. And what we did is we walked with these people through those stages of forming, storming, norming, and performing. So I want to talk a little bit about that and some of the insights we gained from that. But I'll tell you what we really learned, what really happened. We learned we weren't that great of people. Surprising, I know. But it is something we all need to realize at some point in our lives. Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about what it means to be a citizen in the kingdom of God. And this is where it starts. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who realize they are nothing without God. We've got to start there. That has to be our starting place. When you come to realize that apart from God you are nothing, 
it makes it easier to admit faults and to say, I'm sorry. To put others before you, to walk in humility, this really is the key to living in right relationships with others. Admit you're not that great of an individual. I know this sounds weird in a church. Pastor, I thought you were supposed to encourage us. I'm going to get there, but we've got to start here if that's okay. So I'd like to practice that this morning. Oh, pastor, you're not. Yes, I am. So I'm going to invite you to turn to your neighbor. If you're sitting next to your spouse, you may want to turn the other direction for what I'm about to ask of you. But we'll put it in a nice sandwich. You know, you start out saying something nice, you share some truth in the middle, and then you come back to saying something nice. You know the nice sandwich? I use that a lot as a teacher. As a parent, you tell them, oh, your, your kid is wonderful, he needs more spankings, but he's really a nice guy. <laughs> so that's where we're going to go today. So turn to your neighbor, say, God loves you. You're not that great, but God is good. Go ahead, tell your neighbor. Please don't add anything to that message. That went a lot longer than it was supposed to have. But I'll tell you, that really is the starting point for restoring relationships. Uh, when we lived in our close-knit community overseas, uh, we walked through the storming phase, and during this time period, we had to learn the value of living in right relationships. In other words, you have to understand it really is important before you really are going to go there. We had some serious disagreements with work colleagues that needed to be resolved. Some issues were easy to solve. Others, I'm ashamed to say, took years to work through. And I say ashamed because I know as a parent, we've got three kids, and I can't stand it when my kids fight with one another. It absolutely grieves my heart. If you're a parent, I would imagine you're in the same boat. Well, how much more do you think it grieves the heart of God when his children fight? How much energy is wasted on not being in right relationships with your brothers and sisters in the faith? That should be energy spent linking arms with one another to accomplish God's global purpose for your life. Are there relationships in your life, where tensions exist, relationships that have not been reconciled. What we're going to find in our passage this morning that we're about to dive into is that you cannot be right with God if you are not right with others. You may not believe me, but I'd like for you to come and tell me after if you can come to a different conclusion from this passage. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, <laughs> I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. What we're going to find is living in right relationships is extremely important to God. And therefore, it should be extremely important to us as well. So we're going to be reading verses uh, 21 through 24, a passage from the Sermon on the Mount. I hear papers flipping. I cannot hear electronic devices being swiped. Uh, but I do invite you to stand also for the reading of God's word. If you were here and we talked about a message on when we gather, um, I shared that may we always hold in great reverence the word of God. May we never take lightly the fact that God gave his word to us. 
So starting in Matthew 5.21, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there for before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. These are the very words of God. I invite you to be seated. This is a challenging passage. There's a couple of points I'm going to draw out from it, and the first one is this. To be right with God, you must be right with people because murder is more than a physical act of violence. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. In the section before this one in Matthew that we read, and the one right before it, what we find in that section is Jesus shares that he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but that he actually came to fulfill them. He came to live out how the law was meant to be fulfilled. Jesus models for us how to live according to the law of God. And here's some things we need to understand regarding Jesus and the law. A couple of points I want to mention here. The first is this, and really this is the most important. For Jesus, the spirit of the law is more important than the letter of the law, or the law taken literally. The literal law is important, but the spirit behind the law is what is ultimately significant. So here's an example. In the Old Testament, the law was if your ox falls into a ditch on the Sabbath, you can get it out. But then the Pharisees want to ask, well, what if your horse falls in or your child? What are you supposed to do? And so Jesus says, if something needs to be done on the Sabbath, do it. If your ox falls in a ditch, help it out. If your cow falls in, help it out too. He doesn't complicate things. The purpose of the law is more important than the literal command. Like the Sabbath, that would be a law that the Pharisees really had a hard time with. The Pharisees had come up with all kinds of definitions of work. But if you think about it, if the law is you shall not work on the Sabbath and your salvation depends on obeying that law to living that out, you would want to really define that and know that well. So one of the things they came up with is that you can only walk a certain distance and beyond that certain distance, now you're working. But Jesus says, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. In other words, whatever is restful on Sabbath, do that. And spend time with Jesus on Sabbath in church because he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Ultimately, our Sabbath rest is found spending time with Jesus. So I've really lived that out in terms of day-to-day. If you're abiding in Jesus, you're finding Sabbath rest daily. I really don't think it's meant to be restricted to one day a week. It's just something to think about. So Jesus doesn't get rid of the law. He encourages people to dig into it and find out what's behind the law. The spirit of a law is what's important. People were fulfilling the law externally, but internally they were no better off. We see this throughout the New Testament. This is not what the law was meant for, and Jesus is trying to help people understand this in the first century. So after Jesus says he came to fulfill the law, 
He then gives several examples of how the law was meant to be lived out. And one of those relates to living well with others. This was the passage we read this morning. I could talk a lot more about Jesus and the law, but I just want to give you some background to where Jesus is going in this section so that we can move through it in a better manner. But I do want to ask some questions here. Have you been living a legalistic life? One bound by literal commands when the spirit behind these commands is really what is important? Have you told yourself, I haven't physically killed anyone, I'm okay by that law? But then you go out talking about others behind their backs, committing character assassination, using your mouth as a lethal weapon. Jesus has some things to say about that. The spirit of the law is important as we examine the commandment, you shall not murder. To be right with God, you must be right with people because Jesus is concerned with what comes out of your mouth. Jesus gives this three-tiered approach to being angry in your heart. He declares, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. The word judgment here is talking about a local committee, like a city council. So the first level is being angry in your heart means you'll have to answer locally for it. And then he goes on. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. So if a person begins to vocalize that anger, so first it was in their heart, now they're starting to vocalize it, you've risen to a new level. The word insults here, it means empty head. So you've gone from being upset to now you're calling somebody an empty head. You empty head. That's, that's real insulting. But you see, the problem is escalating. This is what Jesus is saying. Instead of reconciling the relationship, you know, you were angry in your heart, instead of making it right there, now you've started speaking poorly of the other person, driving a larger wedge between you. Things are getting worse. When Jesus says a person is liable to the council, he's referring to the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus is sharing this Sermon on the Mount up in Galilee. So a person who starts talking badly about another, giving public insult, they're now held liable to a higher authority. Now, you need to understand that Jesus is a master of hyperbole, and you'll see this throughout the New Testament, and we'll talk about that. He takes these statements, exaggerates them, to help us better understand the spirit behind the law. When you exaggerate something, you can kind of gather the principle out of it. No local court or city council is going to convict someone for being angry. You're not going to have somebody here who you think might be angry with you, take him to a local city court and say, I think he's angry with me, could you do something about it? Who's going who's gonna to see that? There's no way you're going to have somebody call you an empty head. You're going to take him to the Supreme Court. They're going to look at you and wonder, is this guy, he's, he's out of his mind, he's, he's not right. Uh, why would he bring somebody here that's just called him an empty head? No, the Supreme Court's not going to see that case. So Jesus is trying to exaggerate it to help us see the spirit behind the law. But what Jesus is trying to relate here is that this is serious stuff. Relationships matter in the kingdom of God. It's hard to truly love God if you're not really loving people. His final statement is, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. I'm not sure how many of you grew up with parents who took this literally, the statement, Call your brother anything you want, but you call him fool, and that's it. Game over. You know, if you're in the South, you get the switch. Um, thankfully, I didn't grow up in the South. I've heard those stories from my wife, though. Um, does anybody have that, that literal application of, you call him fool, and that's it. You're done. You're going to face the hell of fire. 
But that really isn't what Jesus is saying here. The word fool, as it's used in rabbinic teaching, refers to someone who's apostate. Psalm 14.1 writes, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The person who was the religious heretic was the fool. So what Jesus is literally saying here is, is if you accuse a person of being without religion, of being godless, then you're in danger of hellfire. You're basically making judgment on that person's spiritual well-being. So the first level is being angry with someone, and then you're tried by a local council, moving toward the place where you've called somebody godless, and now you're being tried by God. That's serious. So looking at the spirit behind this law, here's what Jesus is saying. Yes, don't kill another person. That goes without saying. But more than that, don't call them godless. Don't publicly insult them to their face or behind their back and commit character assassination. Don't even think about it because it will drive a wedge between you and that person. And to be right with God, you must be right with people. So have you been guilty of getting angry with others and publicly insulting them and act of moral manslaughter? Have you been responsible for killing someone's career, committing employment homicide? Defamation of character assassinates livelihood. We know this. God is concerned with what comes out of your mouth because what you say can tear down relationships. To be right with God, you must be right with people because Jesus expects unity. Jesus praying earnestly for believers in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he's going to be taken to the cross. He calls out to God the Father, and this is his prayer. He says, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And you may be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Our witness as a church is on the line here. Our ability to genuinely show love to one another determines whether or not we represent Christ to the nations. Jesus declares, Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. The prayer in Gethsemane and this declaration from the upper room during the Last Supper, they happen well before the Sermon on the Mount in Galilee. But from the beginning, Jesus taught about right relationships. He continues, you shall not murder with. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, means you probably called him an empty head. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount in the Galilee area and sacrifices are administered in Jerusalem when you think about geography. So here's what Jesus is saying. If you have traveled to Jerusalem to offer your Passover lamb, but you have an issue with your brother or sister in Galilee, leave the sacrifice. Travel for a week back to Galilee and make it right with them first. Which, of course, means you missed your opportunity to present your sacrifice that year. Now, Jesus gives a literal command. 
but he wants us to understand the spirit behind what he's saying as well. And here's what Jesus is saying. More important than worshiping God, more important than fulfilling what Moses commands is being reconciled with your brother or sister. The spirit behind the law is whatever you have to do, whatever you have to sacrifice, even if it's religious, go and be reconciled to your brother. I'll tell you from experience, what you likely need to sacrifice is your pride. Your pride is the most likely culprit getting in the way of you having right relationships in your life. You need to kill it. Your pride that says, I'm more important than the person sitting next to me. But you're not. Love God. Love neighbor. God first. Your neighbor second. You're in last place. In this passage, Jesus is trying to drive home that the ethical is more important than the ceremonial. When you look at the New Testament and Jesus and his use of the Old Testament, oftentimes what you'll see is he'll grab Isaiah. He teaches a lot out of Isaiah, and I think that's what's happening here. I think Jesus is taking Isaiah 1, and he's taking it in Matthew 5 and saying, this is how you're going to fulfill that scripture in Isaiah. And here's what Isaiah 1 says. It says, what makes you think I want all of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I am sick of your burnt offerings, of rams and of of fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and of lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, who asked you to parade my courts with all of your ceremony? I'm going to put that in our context. If you've come here and you sing songs in worship and you're not in right relationship with your brothers and sisters in faith, you have become a stink in the nostril of God. Here's what he says, and I'm going to keep reading. It's on the screen behind me. Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts, what we are going to call a sacrifice of praise. Don't bring it. The incense of your offerings disgusts me. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen, for your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. In other words, you're guilty of murder. Not the physical act, but of character assassination. Wash yourselves and be clean. I love that God is going to drive home that principle of get right with me and give you instructions on what you can do, and he's going to meet you there. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of the orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. Ethics is more important than ceremony. You know, oftentimes what I've seen is if a person has a strained relationship, they simply try to make things right with God and eventually convince themselves they no longer have an issue with the person that offended them or that they offended. They convince themselves, well, okay, now I gave it to God. Everything's good. But I ask you, is that what the scripture says to do? Is that what Jesus says to do? No. Jesus made it very clear. Leave your sacrifice at the altar in Jerusalem. Travel a week if necessary and make it right with your brother or sister. Making things right with God is not enough. It's not. So I ask, are your hands covered in blood? 
Do you need to sacrifice your pride in order to restore relationships in your life? You cannot be right with God unless you're right with others. We're in this Life Together series, and Colossians gives us some advice on how we can live well in community. This is such a beautiful scripture. It says, since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, and he does, God is for you, not against you. He loves you mightily. You must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults. Forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. There's another scripture that says if you cannot forgive others, God may not be able to forgive you. Above all, clothe yourselves with love which binds us all together in perfect harmony and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Look, I know when, when you work together, when you live together, when you do church together, it's easy to magnify people's faults and to find offense. But I want to encourage us. Instead of focusing on people's shortcomings, Find things to be thankful for in each and every one. This is the other key. The first is, realize you're really not that great. Second thing, there's something great in the person next to you, and you need to be thankful for that. We're all made in the image of God. We all have faults. We are all imperfect. But we also all have great qualities that God means to put to kingdom use. So let's be thankful for each other and what everyone brings to the table. If you are offended by someone... Give them the benefit of the doubt. They may not have meant to offend you. Let them know. Hey, you probably didn't mean it, but when you did, fill in the blank. It could be anything. Because what I find is people fall into one of two categories. Mature people face faults. They face fears and offenses and lovingly work through them and keep moving on. But immature people work to find faults in others, are paralyzed by fear, and are offended at the drop of a hat. They deal with things by stewing in frustration and anger, by talking bad about people with others, allowing these things to divide the body of Christ. John Bevere calls this the bait of Satan. He wrote a book on it. Trying to help people live free from the deadly trap of offense. In other words, you cannot choose how others will treat you. You can't. But you can choose how you will respond. You can choose whether or not you'll be offended. So I admonish you, let's be thankful for one another, give each other the benefit of the doubt, and live united in community. God is for us, but the enemy is not. God wants you to reconcile relationships. Satan would love to keep a wedge between you and others. So as we close, we're going to take time today at the end of the service to work on relationships. Um, I'm not going to have time. Uh, have you come to the front? Because it's not what the Bible says to do. It doesn't say, come to the front, make it right with God. It doesn't say that. I've already mentioned that. What it says is, is you need to restore that relationship with the person. Now, you may need to make a right with God as well, but there's more that we've got to do. So I'm going to close by providing a space for you to start a conversation with others to begin to restore relationships in your life. So during that time, the question is, will you be an agent of God, reconciling relationships, or are you going to be an agent of Satan and allow that wedge to be driven deeper? It's for you to decide. Paul says, take every thought captive to Christ. The issue of offense, it usually starts in your thoughts. So you've got to kill it there. So as I close, I want to ask, are your hands covered in blood? 
Do you have something against someone else? Have you publicly or privately insulted them? But do you desire to be right with God by being right with others? I'm going to challenge you this morning to be intentional about restoring relationships this week. And if there are people in this room that you need to talk to, I'm going to ask that you go to them to at very least start a conversation to make things right. We must be a community that restores relationships. We must move beyond forming and storming to a place of norming and performing to be used by God for his glory in the earth. There are thousands of people outside these walls who will be lost and eternally separated from God if we do not get this right. This is why I emphasize this point. We've got to be on mission for him, but we've got to be right with one another first. What could Connection Point Church look like if everyone was living in perfect harmony with one another? What would our near neighbors think of our church if in looking at us they saw brothers and sisters who genuinely loved one another? It's not going to be an official closing today. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are a real follower of Jesus. So I'm going to have us take time to prove to the world that this church is filled with people who love one another. I'm going to ask that you find someone in this room who you may have a strained relationship with and restore that relationship and take time all week, all month, if necessary, making relationships right in your life. What you'll find is this. You'll sleep better you'll feel better, you'll simply live better. This is what Shelly and I have found and have come to a place where we don't have strained relationships in our lives. We've purposed ourselves to not. We're the better for it, and God can use us how he wills because of it. So I'm first going to go ahead and invite you to stand. If you could stand as we close, I am going to pray. But what I'm going to ask that you do, it's 11.50, so we've got time here this morning. But I'm just going to pray, and I'm going to invite you to walk across this room, find people that you need to start a conversation with. I'm not saying it's all going to be solved here, but I'm saying we can at least start here. And if you're new here today and you don't know anyone, I pray you didn't offend somebody your first five minutes in the church. (laughs) Lord, help us if we did. You know what? There may be relationships in your life that you might need to make a phone call. Um, There are relationships that you might need to make right, and and I trust that you'll do that. So let me just pray, and then I'm going to invite you simply to mingle and just begin to restore relationships here today. Heavenly Father, I just pray that as we continue in this service, I just pray, Lord, that you would begin to call to our minds even now people in this room that maybe we're not in right relationship with. There might be some tension there, but Lord, you desire to make it right because you desire for us to be on mission for you, and we can't do that well if we're not united as a body. So I just pray, Lord, that If there is healing that needs to take place here today, that you would bring healing. If there is freedom from tension-filled relationships that needs to happen, Lord, that you would bring that freedom. And Lord, I do pray that you would make us brave as, as we close and take time to talk with one another, that you would help us to be brave in relationship and talking with one another to make things right. Not only today, not only this week, but all month if necessary, until we can live a life where we can sleep better, feel better, and live better knowing that we have right relationships in our life. All for your glory, King Jesus. Amen.